good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you this evening. And um, some people at least have come back, which is always really encouraging. Um, but there were some people who weren't here last week, I think. And um, if you could let me know who those are, I will provide you with at least some documents. do, um, as they do in all the best uh, television soaps, is to give you a quick resume of what, uh, what we covered last week and our general approach. Uh, that will get it into the minds of those of you who were here last week um, but don't have a very retentive memory. <laughs> but also, for, for those who have come for the first time this week, it will, it will explain uh, why we're starting where we're starting. So what we're doing in this series of four talks, of which this is the second, is to look at the resurrection, particularly to look at what the Bible says about the resurrection in the first three sessions. Last week we looked at uh, Mark and Matthew's accounts of what happened after the resurrection. Uh, this week we'll be looking at Luke and John. Next week we'll be moving on to Paul uh, to see what some of what he says about the resurrection and in the fourth week we'll be uh, thinking about how the resurrection is relevant to our own Christian lives um, 2,000 years later. So that's in general terms what, what we're going to cover. Uh, last week we looked at Mark's account. Uh, we looked particularly at the rather strange way in which Mark ends his gospel uh, at the end of verse 8 of chapter 16. And then we looked at Matthew. We looked a little bit at the way that the two accounts differed, but more particularly we were looking at the ways in which the, the account, for example, in Mark, reflected uh, the emphasis and the other aspects of his Gospel account, and how similarly in Matthew, uh, Matthew's account of the uh, post-resurrection appearances uh, fitted in with the rest of his Gospel. So, um, on the synopsis, which lays out the various uh, events that are reported in the Gospels side by side for the four Gospels and also for uh, Paul, um, that shows how to look across. Uh, in these first two weeks, we're looking, if you like, kind of up the synopsis in each of the columns to um, what, what happened before and how, uh, how the post-resurrection accounts relate to all that went before in the individual Gospels. And we'll be doing much the same thing this evening as we come to look at uh, Luke and John. Last week was um, quite condensed in a way, or at least uh, there was a lot of ground to cover. If anything, this week there is more ground to cover because Luke and John both have rather more extensive reports of the incidents after the resurrection. Um, that means that I will probably uh, not cover in quite so much detail the cross-referencing to earlier in the Gospel, but you will get a handout. In fact, 
There is so much material this week that you will get two handouts at the end of this evening. And, and um, you're welcome to use them as you wish. If, if you want to do a bit more study, if you want to look up some of the uh, biblical cross-references um, that you might find helpful, then, then please do that. But otherwise, um, just take them and, um, uh, well, just have them there in case suddenly uh, your interest in the resurrection ignites for some reason. What I didn't say last week, but what I meant to say was um, that I kind of have a, a sort of personal aim for these sessions for each of the people who attend. And that is that, that um, you should learn at least one new thing that you didn't know before. I mean, it'd be wonderful if you learned lots and lots of new things, but, but one new thing which is, which is really significant. Um, that's a kind of in, in the head, really. Um, or even more important, I would love it if everybody um, learned something in their hearts, something that the resurrection says to them as an individual, some new dimension to their own faith, which helps take them uh, forward uh, wherever they are, really. And uh, this is pitched in such a way that I hope that, um, that whatever your starting point, you will gain some benefit from uh, what I'm going to say. Uh, we are recording this, and there's another change from last week, and that is that uh, the recording came out really well last week, except for when people were asking questions. So when we get to that stage, I'm going to give you a microphone so that we can record your questions for posterity uh, and for those who are not able to be here. So we're going to start uh, with Luke. Luke is generally thought to be the third of the um, gospel accounts to be written. Um, we will touch, as I said last week, on various aspects of biblical scholarship, but I hope that we will, we will not spend too much time on those because that will divert us from our main purpose. Um, and you'll immediately see, if you were here last week, that, that Luke's account of the women finding the tomb empty is really quite similar to Mark's and Matthew's. Um, and so the women, as we discussed last week, do continue to have a prominent role. Uh, but in a way, uh, Luke doesn't seem to give them so much, uh, there doesn't seem to be quite so much detail. Uh, we're on the first page of the synopsis, if you want to have that uh, as we go through. So you can, you can just uh, see that, um, that uh, they, arrive, they arrive at the tomb and, um, and they find the stone rolled away. Uh, but they didn't find a body when they went inside. There are two men uh, in clothes that gleamed like lightning who um, give them a message. And the message is, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. And you remember last week we talked about how um, you can translate he has risen as he has risen or he has been raised, uh, which is kind of... Um, uh, the way that uh, it would have been written with the meaning that God has raised him and next week when we talk about Paul we'll see how significant it is for Paul that it was God who raised Jesus from the dead um, and then the message is given to the women that um, referring back to what Jesus has said about himself and how um, about how he would be crucified and on the third day be raised again uh, they went back then to the disciples and um, their names are given and they told the disciples what had happened and the disciples just didn't 
believe them. Their words, this is verse 11, their words seem to them, that is the disciples, like nonsense. However, Peter, and Peter again gets a mention here in, in uh, Luke's gospel in, in, in two ways, this is the first. Uh, Peter got up, ran to the tomb, saw the strips of linen, and then he went away, wondering him to himself what had happened. So at this stage, Peter doesn't, doesn't understand. Peter is still, if you like, in the state, the post kind of denial of Jesus at his trial state. Um, and uh, so, so that's what happens at the tomb in Luke. And then if you look down that next double page on the synopsis, uh, you come to um, the next account. We'll come back to that in a minute, the road, the road to Emmaus, which is, which is uh, an incident which is only in Luke's Gospel. Just in general terms, um, one of the things about Luke's Gospel is that it, it happens all in the Jerusalem area. Um, you'll remember that in Matthew, Jesus took the disciples to... Uh, a mountain in Galilee, and there he gave them the Great Commission. Well, here everything appears in this account to happen on a single day uh, and in the Jerusalem area. And just like the other two Gospels that we've looked at so far, uh, there are lots and lots of um, references back to what Luke has said in, in earlier parts of his Gospel. In fact, Luke is... Um, Luke is, is uh, really quite significantly complicated in this respect, and I've, I've tried to do here uh, a sort of visual aid which might, might help, uh, help us all to understand. Um, and um, let me start kind of near the beginning. In, in the infancy narratives in Luke, um, the, the, the first two chapters where he's talking about the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus and all the things that happened around that time. Um, there are loads and loads of references back to the Old Testament. The whole of, for example, the Song of Simeon is just steeped in Old Testament uh, theology and, and just phrases. Um, so, so those two are, are related. And uh, once we get to, towards the end of the Gospel, in this last chapter, uh, with, with the uh, tomb of the Emmaus Road and the appearance of the disciples, there are lots of references back, and I'll explain some of those, to, to the infancy narratives, just like in Matthew's uh, Gospel. Um, what's really quite interesting, you may remember that in Luke's Gospel, there is this account of Jesus... Um, going to Jerusalem with his parents at the age of 12 and staying there when they all went home and them not realising because they thought he was with friends or relatives or something and they having to go back, finding Jesus in the temple, arguing with the teachers of the law. And um, what's really interesting is the parallels that exist between um, uh, the Emmaus Road story and that story. We won't have time to develop all of those but but again, in the handout, you'll find some clues if, you, if you're interested in pursuing that. Another thing which, which is fascinating is we got as far, my summary, as the Emmaus Road, the next thing that happens is Jesus appears to the disciples altogether. And if you compare the Emmaus Road story with the appearance to the disciples, again, there are some remarkable similarities. 
um, particularly in relation to the way that Jesus teaches both the disciples on the road and, and the um, disciples uh, when, when he gets there. So, so far so good. So you can see all sorts of kind of relationships running across um, the Gospel, feeding back into the Old Testament references. Um, and of course with Luke, it doesn't finish there. All the other Gospels, to a certain extent, are a bit open-ended. And um, the reader, or the hearer, needs to take the Gospel account on to what uh, he or she knows about the early church. Uh, with Luke, we don't need to do that, because Luke wrote Acts, so that we would know what happened in the early church. And um, particularly in these accounts at the end, there are lots and lots of um, references kind of forward to uh, what's happening in Acts. So just like with Matthew, if you remember, um, I tried to persuade you that Matthew, um, uh, the resurrection comes um, um, in the middle, if you like, of an account which starts with Abraham and runs right through, if you remember the Great Commission, till the end of the age. Lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. So Matthew embraces the whole of, of what we might call salvation history. The history first of the Jewish people, then the history of the new Israel, the Christian people, through to the end of time. And Luke does much the same thing, through, in, in a different way, but just as effectively. And Luke is perhaps, if anything, the most kind of stylish storyteller of all the Gospel writers. And so it's perhaps not surprising that there are these quite complicated links, both back and forward, uh, in his post-resurrection accounts. Um, you'll see when I give you the handout, the specific things, like um, uh, when we've already uh, referred to the fact that um, the words that the women spoke to the disciples seemed to the disciples like nonsense. That's just the same reaction that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, had uh, when the angel brought the message from God that his wife Elizabeth was to have a child and he was struck dumb because of his disbelief. Um, the idea that, that Jesus is the Messiah was also one which is kind of deep within the infancy narratives and is emphasised again uh, in, in the last chapter of Luke. Um, the one who was going to redeem Israel um, when we get to the Emmaus Road, that's them talking about their regrets about what seemed to have happened and what they'd hoped that Jesus was going to achieve. Um, very similar words to, to um, Simeon's, um, the, the words that Simeon uses when boy Jesus is brought to the temple. Um, and, and then perhaps above everything else, the centrality of the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish Bible, for all of this, both in the infancy narratives and, as we'll see in a moment, in the Emmaus and the appearance of the disciples' accounts. So, so I hope that you're at least partially persuaded by that, and, uh, and, and it's all kind of documented in the handout, so you can, you can have a look at that. Um, You'll also see in there um, the, the remarkable references back to this um, event in the temple uh, with Jesus, age, age 12. Um, some of these ideas, are, they're not all direct references, but, but, but they're ideas like it's happening at Passover time. Um, there's the third day that comes up in both accounts. 
there's, a, there's a returning to Jerusalem. All, all, these, th- all these things are they're too many to be simply coincidental, especially for a, for a writer as sophisticated as Luke. They were all important things, pointing signs, as I said, backwards and forwards. Um, so if we go, just go back to the synopsis then, we were on the first double page and we'd reached uh, the account of the road to Emmaus. Now, it would be lovely to read this account and it would be lovely to spend some time uh, developing it, unpacking some of it, but, but there just isn't time to do that tonight because that would be really a single evening on its own to do it justice. Um, but in, in very um, simple terms... Uh, this is on late first Easter Sunday afternoon. And these two disciples, uh, one of whom is called um, Cleopas, were on their way from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus, which um, seems to be about seven, well, it says seven miles from Jerusalem. So that's about a two-hour walk, um, which is kind of just worth bearing in mind for what happens. And, and they were clearly disciples of Jesus, and they were talking about what had happened on the previous Friday, how Jesus had been crucified, uh, how all their hopes had been dashed by this um, apparently final act. And um, they were miserable, basically. They were not happy people. And so they were probably dragging their footsteps a bit as they walked along the road. Um, and then uh, Jesus came alongside them and, and they started talking and he said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, haven't you heard of any person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all these events? Uh, and they started uh, explaining that to him and how, in spite of their hopes, Jesus had been uh, put to death. And uh, they'd heard already that, uh, that the women had been to the tomb And they didn't find the body. They'd seen a vision of angels who said Jesus was alive. Um, And that the women's testimony had been confirmed, as Lucas told us earlier on. Then Jesus takes them to task, really, and says, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe. This is verse 25. Uh, Not to, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So back to the Old Testament, it's all there, Jesus is saying, if you only look with your eyes open. And there, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Eventually they get to Emmaus, and Jesus makes as if he's continuing on his journey, although it must be close to nightfall. Um, and so they, they persuade him. They say, well, why not stay with us? Um, you know, why not come in with us and, and have something to eat? And it would... I guess they might say it would be lovely to carry on talking, although Luke doesn't report that. But they, they persuaded Jesus to say to stay. And um, so he went in with them. And so it was time for the food. And, and this is verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him because of the conversation they'd been having him with with him on the road was in ignorance of who he was. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up um, and 
returned at once to Jerusalem where they found the eleven assembled together and said it is true um, I'm sorry they reported what they said but in, before that the disciples said it is true the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon Peter this is something that happens off stage we've seen Peter going to the tomb We've seen him looking in and not understanding. Well, between that, which was early in the morning, and this, which is late in the afternoon, he has clearly had, um, has seen Jesus and is convinced and satisfied that he has risen. Um, so that, in very brief outline, is what happens on the road to Emmaus and what, what follows. So, so it takes them a couple of hours to get back to Jerusalem. Um, and shortly after they've arrived and this exchange has taken place, then, then Jesus comes and stands amongst them. And I think you'll see, even from a, from a brief synopsis, that, that there are direct similarities between what happens then and what has happened on the road to Emmaus. Um, but first of all, um, the disciples are startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. Uh, Jesus asks them why that is, and he shows them his hands and his feet, um, touch me and see. Um, I'm not a ghost, um, because a ghost doesn't, you know, just doesn't, can't be touched. Um, so then he, he showed them his hands and his feet. Um, and while they still not, did not believe, this is verse 41, um, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him some food to eat. Uh, emphasizing then his his physical existence um, and uh, and then he goes on to say very similar words the words that he said to the two on the road to Emmaus um, this is what I told you while I was still with you everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law and Moses the prophets and the Psalms uh, and then he opened their minds and, and, and expounded the scriptures to them um, and then he goes on to say, this is verse 48 down at the bottom of the page, you are witnesses. Um, and, and the important thing about witnesses as we've discussed before is that the witnesses, the witnesses are what carries this story forward into Acts. Um, the emphasis of much of the preaching in Acts was A, about what God had done in raising Jesus, but B, about the fact that those who were proclaiming this good news were witnesses uh, to that fact. So... Uh, that's important and, and Luke also signposts the fact that God is going to send the Holy Spirit um, in due course. So um, you, can, you can see from that that, that Luke is kind of um, is, is packing some very um, intense incidents into quite a short space um, I've noted the, the similarities. I've noted also how this, um, particularly in what he says to the disciples, he's directly pointing forward. Um, and that's almost it as far as Luke's gospel is concerned because he knows that he's going to be talking in some more detail and expanding some of this material uh, in his second book. But he, but he has the final uh, section, which I've put uh, in the last of the double pages under the heading Jesus Commissions the disciples. In Luke it's a little bit more than that and in fact to some extent he's commissioned them in, in the room where they were. But um, uh, I'm going to read this in full because it's quite short. 
when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And that kind of sets the scene for Acts. But interestingly, um, it's a bit like what happened at the beginning of this evening. Um, At the beginning of Acts, Luke uh, goes back to this last event, and, and he expands the account quite significantly. And I think that must be because he thinks that what he has to say about the ascension, and you may remember that there are, there are uh, two angels who come, down, who come and say, why are you staring up into heaven? Uh, and and sends, them back in, sends the disciples back into Jerusalem. And people have spent a lot of time picking at the differences between the two accounts. But I think here what Luke is wanting to do is, is to bring his gospel, that, that is the direct good news about Jesus' life, death, resurrection and time on earth, um, to an end so that, so that uh, he can focus then on the early days of the church in Acts. So there is a, a, a bit more, uh, there are more, there are more um, kind of incidents there that Luke reports than, than Matthew does and, and Mark, as we know, um, reports only the women at the, at the tomb. Um, but there is also a kind of intense um, uh, theology in there, talking about all these things that um, make this spider's web um, on the chart. I guess that if I wanted to um, try and summarise, as I tried to do for the other Gospels, um, in a single sentence, like a headline for for Luke's accounts, uh, it would be something like, Jesus is alive in the church. Uh, Because of his pointing forward, because um, he he wants us to, uh, if you like, move on to book two, so that we can see how how these scared disciples, uh, those who still really didn't fully understand, even when Jesus came and stood before them, and Jesus then had to expound uh, the scriptures to them, how um, how these men were transformed into fearless preachers uh, who could speak about their own witnessing um, of the events that they were talking about. Um, And... um, for Luke, it, it seems that it is all, you know, one whole, um, but that for those who come after, a significant element of his, of his total kind of proclamation about Jesus lies within uh, what he's saying about the early church and how the message inspired by the Holy Spirit kind of spread like wildfire um, and the prominence that's given then to Peter and later on to Paul in that account. So Jesus is alive in the church, seems to me to kind of do it for, um, for Luke. Um, and, and it does appear, and it's, it appears to a lot, of, um, a lot of writers about the post-resurrection accounts that, that the Emmaus Road incident uh, stands out um, in, a, in a way that... Um, seems just to be highly significant, that there is a lot in there that, um, that was important to Luke. And, and I think generation after generation of Christians have found 
so many different applications of that story. I've even heard um, uh, the road to Emmaus being used as a model uh, for understanding Book of Common Prayer communion service. <laughs> My own position, although um, I don't want to criticise Book of Common Prayer, is that that's stretching both the Emmaus road story and also the Book of Common Prayer communion service. Um, but it shows the extent to which this is, a, is an extraordinarily um, powerful story. And um, perhaps if there's one thing about Luke's Gospel that you might like to take away from this, it's to just read that account and see whether there's something in that that it really speaks to you about all of, all of this that has happened. It's also, I think, noticeable, we skipped over it rather, but I think it's, it's, it's also noticeable that, um, that in Luke, um, and we'll see something even more emphasised in John, that, that uh, Luke breathes on the disciples. Um, and the idea of um, the divine breathing is, is kind of in creation, isn't it? When... when um, when the, the wind was over the waters, the spirit was over the waters, and then if, when God breathed into um, Adam's nostrils. Uh, the idea of, of, of giving life um, in that way, as I'm sure behind what Luke has, has written there. Um, so we're just going to have a short pause, and I've got some music for you to hear, like last week. Um, it is, again, a short extract from a setting... Um, of the Roman Catholic Mass and we're going to cover much the same bit it's the bit where we start off um, where the setting is uh, talking about uh, the crucifixion under Pontius Pilate um, he died passus and was buried sepultus est and then et resurrects it the great uh, cry and you'll, you'll hear a um, very similar effect but for those of you who weren't here last week we heard Part of Bach's B minor Mass today. Today we're going to um, we're going to move countries to Rossini.
So apart from giving you a break from, from me, that um, makes much the same point as, as last time, really. The, the distinction between um, the solo voice singing very slowly um, and, and the whole thing almost coming to a dead standstill um, after he was buried. Uh, and then the choir, and uh, there isn't an orchestra because this is the original. This is the original um, uh, setting with just the harmonium and piano um, of the petite mess solennel, which is which is which is not either petite nor solennel. <laughs> um, but um, but but the contrast the contrast is very significant, and um, you'll see that I've put a couple of pictures around today. We will have more pictures uh, on the fourth. The fourth week, one of them's one of them's being um, covered up by blue, um, and and I'll be talking a little bit ab about that because I think that these um, the, the application of the kind of creative arts to these things can tell us uh, quite a lot, probably much better than we can can articulate them, um, but but you have to be a bit careful how you do it. So anyway, that's. Um, that's Rossini, and, um, and we're now going to turn to John. John, uh, probably the last gospel to be written, um, and like with the others really, but even more so with John, there's considerable speculation about uh, the extent to which he knew about the other gospel accounts when he came to write his own. Um, those of you who were here, and I mentioned it earlier, about the end of Mark's Gospel, a considerable degree of uncertainty about how it came to be that Mark's Gospel, uh, or what Mark wrote, appears to end at verse 8, and then, then there's the short and the long ending, and we, we looked at all of that. There is also something uh, slightly unusual about the ending of John's Gospel. And if you turn over to the last of the last double spreads, um, I've put the whole of the, of the last chapter and a little bit down there uh, and headed the whole thing, the conclusion to John's Gospel. The end of uh, chapter 30, uh, sorry, the end of chapter 20, verses um, uh, 29 and 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in, these, in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, now that seems to be a pretty good way to finish a gospel, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that says pretty much all you might want to say if you're kind of just drawing things to an end. Um, chapter 21, verse 1. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to the, his disciples, and, and, and there, are, there are more incidents to report. And at the end of that chapter, this is what gets written. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So, well, that's a perfectly good ending as well, and that really is the end. Um, but what's interesting, what distinguishes uh, the uncertainty about the end of Mark's Gospel for, from this apparent double ending in John is that there are no 
There are no old manuscripts of John's Gospel which don't include both these chapters. In other words, if, if John himself went back to his Gospel and added the last chapter, or he, indeed if someone else did, but that in itself seems a little unlikely because the, the tone and the words that are used in, in um, chapter 21 are so close to what's used elsewhere. Um, but they've been there kind of since the beginning. Um, and um, so it may be that uh, we just kind of, that's one of those things that we might just have to hold in some sort of tension or hold as, as a mystery. You know, why did he appear to end the gospel and then have more to say? And what I'm going to do is I'm, not, I'm going to ignore that apparent break at the end of the next to last chapter. Uh, and, and we're going to look and see what the whole of this um, account says. Chapter 20, the first of the two chapters, has, has three elements. Uh, Mary Magdalene and the disciples at the tomb. And then two appearances by Jesus to the disciples. In the first one of which, Thomas is absent. And in the second one of which, Thomas is present. And for those of you who know the story, uh, Thomas takes centre stage in that account. Uh, and if we just deal with those uh, first of all, uh, in a way you could say that John's account of the first visits to the tomb is one of the more elaborate ones. In fact, you could say that it's, it's almost as uh, elaborate as um, Matthew's, although it focuses in an entirely uh, different place. And uh, if you look then at the, first, at the first page again of the synopsis. Chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week. Well, that at least is in total agreement with all the other gospel accounts. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Uh, now immediately, if you've, if you've been alert so far... Uh, you'll realise that here we have a single woman, Mary Magdalene, whereas in the other accounts we have always uh, more than one woman. Um, she saw that the stone had been removed, so, so she didn't do any investigating at that stage. She ran, ran back to the disciples, um, uh, but not to all of them, apparently. She had a message for uh, Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Uh, the one Jesus loved, generally taken to be John, uh, generally taken also to be the writer of, of the Gospel. Um, and again, that's an area of biblical scholarship that I'm not planning to uh, go into because I don't think it's helpful in this context. But, but people do debate about which John wrote what and when. Um, so these two, I mean, this is, there is, this is a, a, a remarkable account, really, because uh, these two then start out for the tomb. Uh, and, and we discover quite a lot about them. John is a much better runner. <laughs> uh, and he gets the tomb first. But John is clearly more circumspect than Peter. So Peter, who's not far behind, um, comes along. And, and then Peter sees the, the tomb, which is as uh, Mary has said, told them it is, with the stone rolled away. And Peter immediately goes into the tomb. But um, 
just as you know, John is initially a bit tentative, Peter goes in and looks around, um, but he doesn't immediately twig. But John goes in, John sees, and um, verse 8, he went in, inside, he saw and believed. Uh, and, and so in this little incident, we, we, we hear a lot about, um, not necessarily just these two people, but, but how people respond in different ways to the Christian message. You know, some people um, uh, kind of take it up and run with it rapidly. Some people um, kind of almost don't care about anything. They, they go in there and, and, and it's all uh, great, but they don't fully understand it. Other people maybe take their time a bit more and, and actually come to a better knowledge quickly. So I think there's something here, similarly to the Road to Emmaus incident, which, which if we have our minds open, we can gain a lot more than simply, well, this is a story about two disciples, one who's a good runner and one, you know, and all this kind of thing. Um, so so there, is, there is kind of real um, spiritual meat to this. And it's not simply um, a story that we can choose to regard or disregard as we wished. So um, then the disciples uh, leave and they go, they went back to their homes. Um, but Mary, uh, who also we learned quite a bit about, Mary just didn't want to go away from the tomb. Um, the implication is that she didn't fully understand what was going on, but somehow she sensed that she ought to stay there. Um, so that's what she did. She just stood outside the tomb uh, crying because she was not happy. She was not happy. Um, you know, the other two, the men who were supposed to know everything, they came along and they hadn't said anything to her and they, then they'd gone home. Um, so Mary's um, kind of um, constancy uh, is rewarded, really. Um, she decides she's going to have a little look, another little look into the tomb because um, if the men could go in, well, why couldn't she? And she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Um, it's interesting, I think, isn't it, that, that when Peter and John went into the tomb, they didn't get this, they weren't... For some reason, it didn't seem right for them to be given this message. Uh, perhaps they were out of breath, and so they weren't, you know, they weren't ready for it or something. But for Mary, um, she's kind of elevated by this because she is um, not only is she given this message, but it goes on that she turns around and she saw Jesus standing there, didn't realise that it was him, and um, in her. Uh, and Jesus says, why are you crying? Uh, who are you looking for? And she, thinking it was the gardener, said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and, and, and I'll go and get him. Um, Jesus said to her, Mary. And um, within that, there, there's, there's just so much within that, isn't there? Um, 
sort of doing the right thing but not really quite understanding that you're doing the right thing and still being utterly confused but kind of hanging on and then being called by name. It's being called by name that transforms her from really a bit of a wreck into someone who, who is immediately then given a job to do. Um, and, uh, and Jesus um, talks to her, tells her not to hang on to him. Um, and uh, then she goes to the disciples and tells them what had happened. And, and I don't think it's through, um, it, it's through a realisation of the significance of this that Mary Magdalene is often described as the apostle to the apostles because of her significant role in this. So, although John's talking about just a single woman, he is kind of elevating the status of that woman um, quite dramatically. So that's what happens in the morning. Then in the evening, the disciples were together, and they were in a room, and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Uh, not just any Jews, but particularly the, the Jews in the hierarchy, the Jews who were capable of doing to them what they'd done to Jesus um, the Jews who would have liked to have arrested the disciples when they arrested Jesus. So, so they're scared and they're behind locked doors. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And um, again, it seems that the idea that, um, that what Jesus is essentially bringing uh, is peace is is a very important thing for John. Um, you may remember, uh, I think it's in, in uh, Matthew, that, that when Jesus comes uh, uh, to the women, uh, he says greetings, <laughs> um, which, which isn't, doesn't quite have the same weight, does it? But here he comes and says, uh, peace be with you. And I think in John's Gospel particularly, almost every word has, has some... Uh, significance. So he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Um, again Jesus said, peace be with you, and as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Um, and, and so for John it seems important, that breathing the, the beginning of the new creation, just as the breathing of God was the beginning of the first creation. This new creation, the breath being the passing on of, of, of the Holy Spirit uh, to the disciples, um, uh, seems to be of extreme importance. And also, um, you'll remember that much of John's Gospel has to do with the relationship between Jesus and his Father, God. Uh, well, here again, he makes the reference, which if you've been reading John's Gospel, you can't fail to pick up as the, the closeness uh, and the kind of similarity between um, God the Father to Jesus the Son, Jesus the Son to uh, the, his disciples, the ones that he sends out in the name of God the Father um, and uh, having breathed on them with the Holy Spirit. So, uh, not many words in that account. But, uh, as I say, I think that that's full of, it's full of meaning and, and theology. Theology just 
things about God. Uh, the third incident in the chapter is uh, the following week. Same time, same place, same... Um, Yes, same, same situation. I was just checking because I couldn't remember whether the doors were locked. But the doors were still locked. Uh, <laughs> and um, Thomas was with them. And then there is this, there is this kind of huge revelation. Because Thomas has been quite difficult about things, hasn't he? He said, well, I'm not going to believe you just, just because you tell me. I don't, no, there's no way that I'm going to believe you. I need to see the, the marks of the nails in Jesus' hands, and I actually need to put my hand into his side where, where the, sent, uh, the Roman soldier's spear had gone. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe. Then Jesus comes and he says, um, he says uh, um, basically the, the, the same thing, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, oh, I understand that you want to, you, you know, you actually want to, to do this. <laughs> and... Uh, we don't hear whether Thomas actually does need, but the implication is he doesn't. My Lord and my God. Uh, that kind of declaration is, is the most dramatic of all the declarations about Jesus in any of the Gospels, really, because it takes it so far ahead. You may remember um, in, in the other Gospels uh, where Peter, in really the middle of the Gospel account, suddenly has the inspiration to say that... Uh, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he says, and who do you say that I am? And Peter blurts out, well, you are the Messiah, um, the anointed one. Uh, and he's been told to say nothing. And Jesus talks about his, his future death. And, and Peter says, no, that, that can't be the case. If you're the anointed one, no, that can't be the case. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. But my Lord and my God is an extraordinary affirmation of all that Jesus is. It goes kind of way beyond uh, anything that we're told about the other disciples' recognition of who Jesus was at this point. Um, and, and then Jesus, this seems to be kind of a message um, for us really. Um, Jesus saying to Thomas, because you have seen me you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so that uh, is virtually all of the whole of the Christian church from then on. They haven't had the opportunity. They are not witnesses. And for those who are not witnesses, the only way to believe is through, uh, through believing in, in the account or, or receiving um, whatever it takes in your heart uh, to, to make that step of faith. So that's, chap that's chapter 20. Um, that all takes place in Jerusalem. Chapter 21 takes place in Galilee. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And the whole of this chapter is really a single, a single event uh, with various sections to it that seem to, seem to address uh, quite a kind of multiplicity of, of different issues, as we'll see in a moment. But the first, the miraculous catch of fish, that is very similar to what Luke records uh, in, in his gospel about uh, Jesus. Um, after, after these professional fishermen had failed to catch anything, uh, Jesus, the rabbi and carpenter, comes along and says, well, you've got it all wrong. Throw the net on the other side. Uh, and, uh, and they suddenly get the net full of fish. Well, it's similar, it's similar to that, but 
the timing is entirely different and the way in which John takes the story is quite different too. And again, there are, there are all sorts of um, all sorts of resonances there, and um, and even in the detail, it's 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 quite different. But it's worth knowing that, that this isn't the only uh, miraculous catch of fish in the gospel accounts. Um, so there's Jesus um, with with a fire. Uh, interestingly, John doesn't say much elsewhere in his gospel about the calling of the disciples or not the calling of the disciples beside the sea, which is so prominent in, in the, um, the other three gospels. But here they are. We've got all sorts of, um, all sorts of uh, fishermen. Uh, Thomas is a, is a fisherman, which we don't know from anywhere else. Nathaniel, who is mentioned in John, I think, chapter 3. Um, and, uh, and the sons of Zebedee, who we know were... Uh, fishermen from the other Gospels. They're all out there fishing, um, perhaps because that's what they thought they should do. Um, and then uh, Jesus um, uh, calls out to them and, and tells them how to get a proper catch. Um, and they couldn't haul the, the net in because there were so many, so many fish in it. Um, and, and again, the, the one who recognises who the man on the shore is, is John, the beloved disciple. And he says to Peter, it's the Lord. Uh, and uh, Peter, who hadn't done the recognition, but Peter immediately reacts. Um, and, um, and I think he puts his coat on, doesn't he? Um, he was obviously um, fishing naked, obviously the thing to do, but, but you'd expect to take your close off when you jump into the sea. This is a small point. It shows how little I know about fishing in first century Galilee. Anyway, he put his cloak and jumped in and, and rushed to the shore and left everyone else to bring this huge catch of, of fish in. But again, a demonstration of his kind of impetuous nature, which God is soon going to turn to huge advantage. Um, and, and Peter, as you know, becoming um, the great leader of the Jerusalem church. Um, so there's a father with, with fish on it and some bread. Well, fish and bread um, sounds like the feeding of the 5,000, which, which John makes a very big deal of in his gospel, using it as a kind of symbol of Jesus himself. And most unlikely that we would get a mention of bread and fish if he wasn't referring uh, back to all that that implied. Um, and... Uh, the idea of, of um, sharing, bring some, some of the fish you've caught. Uh, and we get the number of fish, 153 large fish. Uh, again, it's a wonderful subject for scholars to debate why it's 153. It's not the most obvious of numbers, but <laughs> people have said, well, maybe it's the number of nations on the earth at that time or something like that. Um, undoubtedly, it, it had meaning because John didn't bother to write things down that had no, no meaning. Yeah, and the net wasn't torn. Another, you know, not just for itself, but for the fact that if this was 153 nations, that, that somehow, starting with these 11 disciples, it was going to be possible to take God's word everywhere, which would just be seeming to be impossible. And indeed, the net didn't break. Um, the word went out. So, um, come and have breakfast. Um, Interestingly, after what we've already been told, none of the disciples dared to ask Jesus, who are you? 
Um, but that seems to be then, then John said, well, they didn't ask him because they knew. Um, and, um, and then Jesus hands out the food, the bread and the fish, again, like at the feeding of the 5,000. When they finished eating, and by implication, Jesus is one of the ones who is eating again, emphasizing the point that, that this is not a kind of spiritual experience that, that the disciples were kind of seeing in their common attitude, but this was a person of, of, uh, of physical reality. Um, and then there is this uh, kind of almost remarkable um, account of Jesus restoring Peter. Peter who had denied Jesus so vehemently at his trial. Um, Peter who not even realised when he'd arrived at the tomb was still in a kind of state of, you know, not being a leader of anything. And then Jesus says these, these words to him. And I think one of the reasons that he may have asked the same question, which, which began to irritate Peter, you know, he said... Um, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, you know that I do. And Jesus just repeats it. And Peter says, yes, you know. Peter begins to get angry because he said, well, I've told you that I do. Maybe the point about this saying this three times is to reinstate each of the denials because there were three of them as well. Um, and, and so um, uh, Jesus says, uh, feed my sheep. And then, the, then there's this uh, slightly strange um, bit about about looking forward to how uh, Peter is is going to be martyred, um, which is crucifixion. And you may recall um, that Peter insisted on being crucified upside down, according to legend. That's not in the Bible. Um, and then just right at the end of verse 19, again, I think hugely significant for John. Then. Jesus said to Peter, follow me. As I said earlier, John doesn't have the calling of the disciples beside the sea, where the other gospel writers uh, say Jesus said, follow me. It's almost as if uh, for uh, John, and I think John would have believed that this was what Jesus was meaning, it was almost as if until Peter had gone through that experience of kind of desperate denial and betrayal, um, it was no good saying, follow me, because it, it wouldn't have had its full meaning. But now, having gone through that, having been raised up, or perhaps restored is, is better when we're talking about the, the resurrection, being restored to his rightful place, then, with all that bad and good experience behind him, then he could follow Jesus. And again, I think there's something really important that we might want to reflect on, how uh, it is difficult, I think, to, to follow someone if you don't really... I mean, I think it's always amazing that the disciples did follow Jesus when he first called them. Uh, I think there's something much more powerful and perhaps more realistic in our own lives. If, if arising out of all our experiences, when we've, when we've known uh, God through Jesus faithful to us, then the instruction to follow him seems to have so much more substance. Uh, and although it may not be easy for us to do, it may be something that is, you know, we're kind of temperamentally, uh, find it easier to accept. But, but that's just, 
there is there is so much kind of um, illusion in all of this, and uh, not all of it will be for all of you. Um, you may find that you or you're already on overload with some of this, but but some of it will stick, I think, and I hope that it will, and that you may return to that. Uh, we haven't quite finished, and uh, then you know Peter is wonderful. Uh, Peter. Um, turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved, the one who, you know, the one who was better at Jesus in lots of spiritual ways, um, as we've just heard. Um, and, uh, uh, and Peter says, um, uh, what about him? And um, Jesus' training of Peter hasn't quite finished up until this point. He's done the restoration, he's done the, the command to follow, but Peter still isn't perfect, as none of us are. And um, so um, Jesus says, well, if I want him to stay alive till I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Um, now, I think the interesting thing is that basically, I think Jesus is saying, kind of don't worry about how other people are doing with me. You focus on what I've asked you to do. Um, you know, comparing and contrasting with other Christians is not going to help you. You, Peter, you have to follow me. And, and if I want John to stay alive till I come again, well, you know, so what? Um, but there is a suggestion in this that, the, that, 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 that um, and it says so because in verse 27, the rumour spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But, John says, Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die, only that, well, if I want him to remain until I come again, what is that to you? So we're left with this kind of, this is, this is slightly equivocal, isn't it? Uh, and it, it seems to mix up an account of an event with um, the benefit of hindsight. Uh, and John, uh, the evangelist, wanting to emphasise uh, one aspect of what Jesus said. And then we get, we get the conclusion that I've already read to you. Uh, so I've concentrated in, in that bit of the presentation much more on some of the meanings that we might take from what's been written. Um, and you'll have to look at the handout if you want to uh, look more closely at uh, things like the resonances. Um, and um, uh, again, looking back to um, the beginning of John's Gospel, just like, just like um, Luke and Matthew. Of course, in John's Gospel, there is no infancy narrative, but there is that uh, wonderful, what, what's called the prologue, um, the bit that's read um, often Christmas time, verses 1 to 14, the prologue actually goes on to verse 18, and typically, in the beginning was the word, and, and, and so on. Uh, and uh, you'll see on the handout that there are, that there are, um, there are lots of references back to those verses in, in um, these accounts, uh, which I'm not uh, going to go through here. Uh, another interesting thing about the words that Jesus uses to Peter, um, remember in John's Gospel, Jesus calls himself, I am the Good Shepherd. Um, and there's a sense by uh, Jesus saying to Peter, feed my flock, that, that Jesus is handing over to Peter something which up until that point, Jesus has reserved for himself that idea of being the shepherd of the sheep. He's kind of handing it over, having breathed on them, um, feeling that it's time to commission Peter 
into that role. So if I wanted to summarise John's Gospel, like I've done with the others, I, I would say something like, Jesus is glorified. The idea of glory is another one of those words that is kind of, is, is throughout John's Gospel. And, and this act of uh, God raising him up is, is uh, glorifying him. Um, it's interesting that in the early parts of the Gospel, whereas in the other Gospels, Jesus is very explicit, although the disciples appear to forget it, about his uh, future death and resurrection. Um, in John, all the references are much more um, indirect and elusive, talking, for example, about, about the, the temple and the temple being uh, rebuilt. And, and then there's a lot of uh, discussion about Jesus going and coming back with the disciples. They don't fully understand it. This all seems to be John's way of talking about things, but, but as I say, less directly than the other writers. Um, but I think, too, the way that uh, John has written about the individuals who are involved in these accounts, Mary Magdalene, uh, Peter and John and Thomas, um, are far more uh, kind of rounded and personal accounts uh, than we get in any of the other Gospels. Um, and, and I think that's also... Um, kind of consistent with what's happened earlier in John's Gospel where he does focus on individual incidents and kind of lets them run uh, and gets more out of them if you like than perhaps uh, the other Gospel writers um, so there we are and uh, I thought we'd just I thought we'd have another little piece of music now and this is this is um, uh, this is uh, different because this is this is kind of uh, beginning to carry us forward to some of the ideas and themes that we'll be uh, looking at next week. And it's in English, so you won't need me to tell you the words.
Having said what I said at the beginning, unfortunately I, I didn't start it quite uh, early enough. It starts off, blessed be the Lord uh, and Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and then it talks about the resurrection. Those are words from um, 1 Peter. Uh, and we're not going to be talking about the, um, the resurrection in the New Testament other than in Paul. But it's, it's kind of beginning to say that the resurrection is is for us. It is God's gift to us. Um, I've got one more thing I want to do this evening before we, um, before we have any questions and discussion. And that is, I want to um, just give you a brief summary. Uh, now, that, now that we've been through all four Gospels in um, very, uh, very rapidly, um, I, I just want to leave you with a few ideas, and again, these, these will be on a handout for you to study if you want to, of um, what, what, what you could summarise as the similarities and differences. So, having gone through the kind of vertical columns, uh, or at least four of the five columns in the synopsis, uh, just to kind of draw together what, uh, what might be across the page. Um, I think the first thing that we've seen is how consistent the way in which the Gospel writers write their accounts is with the rest of their Gospels. Uh, and, and I would, if I've, if I've um, kind of failed to get any other point over to you, I think that's a really significant one. Uh, and that is, in a way, far more important than, or it's more important to me anyway, than worrying too much about individual differences between Gospel accounts of what appear to be the same event. Um, there are differences um, and you can take those in two ways first of all you can say well, the differences suggest that um, one of the accounts at least is wrong or you can say well yes but we know the differences arise when people are remembering things uh, and it seems to me and you must make the judgment for yourself but it seems to me that the similarities the things that hold these accounts together are much more significant than the differences. So, for example, um, uh, we've talked a bit about the women and 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 the women or or a woman. It's 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 at least one woman. We can be in no doubt about that. And as I said last week, that's highly significant uh, in in itself. Um, and. In, in Matthew and John, it's not just the women who discover the tomb first, but, but they, have the, they have the first encounter with the risen Jesus, and that seems to be highly significant. Um, there's consistency too in the fact that the stone has been rolled away and that the tomb is empty. There is no, there is no doubt about that at all. Um, there is always... There is always an angel or a messenger bringing a message from God, at least one. Um, Peter is given some prominence in each of the accounts, even though that may be evidenced in, in, in different ways. Uh, and I think the point that someone asked um, in a question last week is, um, there's also consistency in the one thing that is absent from all of them, and that is an account of the resurrection itself. And as I promised last week, um, I'm, I'm going to be trying to, ex to unpack what that might mean for us, that no one, um, no one 
was willing to write down what they thought might have happened. In other words, they weren't inventors. Uh, it would have been easy to invent something, you know, fantastically dramatic and spectacular happening as Jesus somehow emerged from the tomb. But they didn't. Um, it's interesting too, and again there's a degree of consistency, that, that unlike in the um, Passion and Crucifixion accounts, uh, although I've, I've tried to emphasize that there are ways of getting back into the Old Testament, there are far fewer, if any, direct references to Old Testament prophecies in the Resurrection accounts. Um, you may not think that's terribly important, but, but I think it says something, and again, something that I'll come back to in, in week four, about, about something different about how the gospel writers tried to explain the resurrection compared with the ways in which they wrote about uh, the events leading up to it, the crucifixion itself. Um, One thing that is quite interesting, and we'll see next week that it's not the case for Paul, is that, that none, of, none of the Gospel writers mention James. We know that James subsequently became a very important leader, along with Peter, in the Jerusalem church. Uh, and, and it seems to me that this is just another, this is a kind of another way of um, countering a suggestion which has often been made, which is that these, these Gospel accounts were written uh, perhaps to deal with issues that became important later in the church, uh, not in the not in the specific um, uh, way that, that we heard just recently about um, Jesus saying um, uh, and the rumor about about John not dying, but more generally dealing with contentious issues within the church. Well, if that had been the case, it seems highly unlikely to me that James wouldn't have been mentioned because he he was. Uh, so significant. Um, another thing that's, that's very consistent is, is Jesus' own authority and initiative. It's really he that, he that kind of takes control of all these events in much the same way as he'd taken control throughout, throughout his, his ministry. Um, and even, you could argue, takes control when he's on trial uh, by his silence and by the few answers that he gives. Um, there can be no doubt that uh, the risen Jesus to the gospel writers was a physical being. Uh, even if a physical being in both Luke and John who can appear and disappear at will. And we'll come back more to that in Paul's account next week. Uh, another thing that, 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 that you have to see behind all the gospel accounts is the fact that that in no case do, do, do the gospel writers uh, make, uh, make the case that something was expected to happen of this kind. They refer to the, the, uh, Jesus' predictions, but these clearly weren't in the minds of the disciples or indeed of the women. There is nothing to suggest that at all. Uh, and it's only afterwards that they recognise uh, what they'd heard before, and can put Easter morning into place. Um, and the other thing that perhaps is quite interesting, although when we were looking at Luke, we see the way that he m moves by reference forward into to the Acts. 
Um, there is very little here, really, of substance about the thing that for Paul is so important, the idea of Jesus as the first fruits, Jesus as the kind of model and exemplar for, for what uh, is going to be available to all Christians. So, um, there are just some of the things, and, and you'll see that I've kind of drawn my own conclusions, which I'm happy to share with you on the handout, but... but we're running a little bit short of time, I'm afraid, um, because I'm so excited by the subject. Uh, but I do want to give you the opportunity to, um, to raise any points, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to um, use the microphone for the reason I explained earlier. So, who would like to say something? Uh, really just an observation. Um, you, the accounts clearly, clearly have considerable differences in them, um, and it threw, threw my mind back. I was thinking of it from last week uh, to several years ago when I was at the head teachers' conference, uh, and they gave us free newspapers the next morning. Um, and I looked through the newspapers. And I thought, did I have too good a lunch? And I fell asleep because this is not what I was hearing. There had been tremendous rows, and, and I hadn't noticed them. The minister was present, so the Secretary of State was present, and I didn't see any of this at all. And, and that was only the next day. And so it makes me think where, obviously there are other things happening in the years that have moved on since the actual events of the resurrection, but, but it doesn't surprise me at all that, they, that the details should be quite, have these, these differences. Yeah. What, one woman, some women, and so on. Okay, thank you. having a microphone available shuts people up, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else want to say anything? Here we are, well done, here. I always feel about the resurrection appearances, the thing which strangely enough worries me more than anything else is the Galilee versus Jerusalem uh, bit. And Luke seems to have a great consistency in the sense that his gospel ends in Jerusalem, and the Acts of the Apostles um, continues in Jerusalem, and Galilee seems to be strangely absent. Uh, John seems to have this thing that he talks both about resurrection experiences, appearances in Jerusalem and in Galilee. That's in a curious way, this extra chapter uh, adds the Galilee dimension. Um, whereas um, Matthew, as I think we were doing last week, um, talks about appearances in Galilee. Although the, that subtle bit where you, you've got the, the, the word in the text that um, the angel says, um, Jesus told you when he was in Galilee, and the other gospel uh, talks about going to Galilee. And this word Galilee seems to be um, reported almost in two different contexts, but it, it appears to be the sort of start of it. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I always find it difficult to bring together the, the, the two geographies. Yeah. Well, that was a point that was that was made. Um, I'm afraid I made it last <laughs> last week, um, and uh, we we could actually add 
we could add to um, what we put up because we had um, Matthew in Galilee. Um, uh, Mark indicating that Galilee was going to, to be the place where Jesus appeared. Um, if we take uh, Luke, as you say, Luke was there, and then we can put John on both sides. So um, it may be something that we can't resolve, um, but, but we'll kind of be bearing, bearing that in mind as we, um, as we go through. It may be that we can't resolve it, um, and it may be that actually it might be one of those things when we come to the last week, we say, well, we can't resolve it, but how much does it matter to us? That, that may be where we get to. I'm not saying it will be. Anybody else like to say anything? Or ask any questions, which someone else... Yeah, so, yeah, really more comment question. It's just that... Um, uh, there are four people here that we've talked about, uh, the Gospel writers, and uh, they, they appear to, at different stages through the storyline, and in a sense uh, they're remembering it and writing it at different stages. But there's a remarkable thread, common thread, running through the whole thing. So there's no, no reason at all why they shouldn't be sort of, sort of different. But uh, it's the thread running through it that seems to be important. Yeah. And that is remarkably the same all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that, that's one of, the, one of the points that, that I was hoping to, to make, so thank you for uh, at least indicating that at least for one person. That, that <laughs> I don't chuck much. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, 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 but, but I wanted to make that point because actually preparing this, that was one of the strongest points that, that came through to me. Um, and... Uh, like, like many things, I think there will be questions that we can't quite resolve in our own minds. And the, the question is, uh, kind of, well, one of the other alternative questions will be, um, have we resolved enough that we can get beyond um, discrepancies to the sort of truth that lies behind it? Um, and for some people that will be easier than for others, but, but what, I would, what I would hope to do is, is to emphasize my own feeling that the truth behind all this is far more significant um, than, than the points of debate. And, and people, have been, uh, people have been discussing the points of debate, the differences, if you like, um, for, for uh, many years. And I would say in a way that the points of difference pro, uh, you know, are, are mainly up in the head which is not a bad place to be because we apply our rational minds to many of the things that we decide. But the truth behind all of these accounts, I think, is, should be located much, much more in the heart in the end. But not all of us will kind of get there uh, in that way or, or necessarily that quickly or for some of us even at all. Um, but, but anything that kind of helps us get there, I think, is, is, is good. I think we've got time for one more, if anybody would like to. Yeah. John, I don't know what sort of significance you place on the fact that Jesus, that Jesus appeared in his physical body. Mm. And does this give rise to the part of the creed, which is, I believe, in the resurrection of the body, yeah. Because I must admit, personally, this is one part of the creed that gives me great difficulty. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, again, it's on our list, isn't it? Um, what kind of body? And um, uh, it's, well, I hope that I've uh, persuaded you, because I don't think the texts are available to be read in any other way than the Gospel writers, uh, with the possible exception of Mark, where, where the, the evidence isn't, isn't strong enough. But for all of the others, there is enough there to say that the Gospel writers believe that Jesus when he was risen, had a physical form. Um, but I want to put that question off in much the same way I did last time because, because a lot of Paul's writing is about what kind of body. Um, and um, that will be a major topic for next week. In the meantime, kind of keep... But, it, but that is the reason that it's there in the Creed. Precisely that reason. Because... Most of the heresies in the early, early days of the church were about the nature of Jesus um, and um, not necessarily just Jesus after the resurrection, but, but you know, was, was Jesus only ever a spirit? You know, did, he, did he have a human body ever? Um, you know, there were major heresies that, that the church had to fight against um, uh, and the tension between uh, Jesus as as divine and Jesus as a man were ones that weren't really worked out until until the creeds were formulated uh, in what? Anybody? Keith will know. Nicaea? No, I think it's Nicaea. 390, something like that? Some, you know, quite, so, so quite late on. Um, so, yeah, you'll just have to trust me that we, we, we're, not, we're not skirting around that. The, the, right, the, the gospel writer's evidence is quite clear. Um, you know, the broiled fish, the sharing of a meal, uh, handing out food, the, the, the um, clasping of his feet in Matthew. It's quite clear what they believed. Uh, and, and so um, I, I don't see there's any doubt at all about that. We'll come on to, to uh, talk about my, uh, Paul. Paul also, in my view, is, is, is very clear. Um, but 